Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. With Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. You're listening to the Heroes Podcast Network. Hello and welcome back to Red Shirts and Runabouts. This is one of your weekly, bi-weekly Star Trek podcasts. We're part of the uh, Heroes Podcast Network. I'm one of the usual hosts, Greg. I'm actually happy to be back. I had to take about a month break again on Derek just because of just because of work getting crazy. But Derek, you're the stable the stable one of the unit. So <laughs> go ahead and say your hellos, buddy. Hey, like I'm glad I'm glad to have you back, Greg. And we had uh, we had Ray and Zach on. Uh, quite a bit to help us get through Star Trek Picard. And, you know, I'm sorry you missed it because I know you've got some strong opinions about the show. I, I do, <laughs> but, you know, in some cases it's probably best if I wasn't. Because sometimes <laughs> I do, I do, um, uh, what's the, what's the line that, you know, Kirk uses in Wrath of Khan, you know, you must learn to govern your passions. <laughs> well, you know, it's, it's good to have differing viewpoints and, um, you know, for those of you who didn't catch those episodes, uh, Ray, Zach, and I did not always agree. We did not always see eye to eye either. You know, um, everyone looks for something else when it comes to their fictional content. But, you know, hey, look, we, we have plenty of time before the next show. So maybe, Greg, you and I will have a a season one wrap up at some point so you can you can vent a little bit. You know? I will say it is it is kind of uh, even reading online, which is always dangerous these days, yeah. but even listening to other podcasts and YouTubers, a lot of discussions on Raffi anymore is they feel that the actress was got, had a, like a raw deal, which I agree with because they kind of built her up a little bit and then she said horrible stuff happened to her and you had that scene that you heard me rant about when Picard's like laughing at her when she's drunk on the bridge, which is anyways, we're not here to talk about Picard though. No, no, we're not. We're not. So in our first episode with Greg back, and uh, as a reminder, we are bi-weekly for the time being, at least I would imagine until the next show kicks off and we have weekly content uh, from that standpoint. But uh, we decided this week to talk about a topic that a lot of our friends and followers and listeners have been interested in, and that is starship design. And Greg, I know this is a topic you've wanted to talk about for a really long time. Well, it's something that I've always loved with Star Trek is they've always been able to do fun looking designs. Like, I, you know, so a good buddy of mine, Brent and I have been watching Star Trek remotely. We've been starting with the movies again, kind of like what you've done a few times. And, you know, even when we're watching Star Trek one, like the Klingon D7 battlecruiser, there's just something 
so iconic of the design and i don't know if it's because it's klingon or what it's just the design is good and then you have it's that and that's the thing with star trek and that's why i was a little disappointed with the picard finale was the copy paste ships mm-hmm. and everybody kind of explaining it away like well remember starfleet's inward and like well Riker still rallied a fleet of like 300 battleships in about 12 hours so they're not that inward <laughs> <laughs> you know what i mean it's not like you remember how when the borg invaded earth and you know, Wolf three five nine, and they could only scramble up like forty ships. <laughs> Times have changed. Times, Times have changed after the Dominion but War. It, <laughs> and it, it's a fun topic though because it's it's one of those topics where there's truly no right or wrong. Like you can people can get together and admit, you know, man, Next Generation season one was kind of rough. But with Starship design, it's always going to be truly based on people's personal opinions, even the old school model making days. Mm-hmm. I think that's what i love about motion pictures all the ships built with the actual old you know naval ship model plastic parts and everything i miss those yeah you know you talk about the motion picture and that movie i think it's a bad rap a lot especially in modern times because it, it's slow you know it's it's kind of like 2001 a space odyssey it's it's designed to be very um philosophical very thoughtful very purposeful and you know, you take the story equation out of it because we could have a whole analysis about that. But the visuals are quite gorgeous. And the models that they use for all of the ships, including the the large scale V'ger, are really incredible. And, you know, the, the goal of this episode is we're going to be talking about Starfleet ship design. So I don't, I don't want to spend too much time on this. But I, the D7 is absolutely one of my favorite Star Trek ship designs That's that's out there just across the board. I've always loved it. And the last thing I'll say about the motion picture, because you're right, we should move on, is I would argue that the motion picture visually looks better than 1977 Star Wars. Mm. I'm not saying the movie had a better story. Obviously, I don't think it did. Star Wars, A New Hope is near and dear to everybody. It's near and dear to me. But visually, there are no flaws with the motion picture. Yeah, I mean, it, it's it's gorgeous, and I, th- I think maybe part of the problem is it knows it's gorgeous, right? So you've got the scene where Kirk and Scotty are on the little sh- on the little pod going up to the Enterprise, and it's like a 10-minute scene. And look, the model's gorgeous, okay? It really, truly is. Uh, but even I'm like, let's let's get let's get going. <laughs> you know? the, the joke, you can go get your brakes done and come back, and that scene is still going on, yeah. <laughs> it's true, though. It, it kind of just goes on forever, and I, I get it. It was their their big return, their triumphant return. And they had a budget and they had talented people and they wanted to, to show that off to show what they had. And, um, you know, this can kind of segue into our conversation because that's our first look at, you know, true full production quality Star Trek ships. Cause the show was, you know, almost, almost 15 years before this on a TV show budget. And this is your first film, and you get that refit of the Enterprise, the refit of the Constitution class, what is arguably the most iconic ship in Star Trek, which is the Constitution class, right? You know, you 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 have someone draw the the uh, the the little the the four ovals that are connected to each other, and everybody knows what that is. Um, and I think this was kind of what made it made it truly mainstream was this refit. Um, it's it's really pretty gorgeous. It's it's definitely one of my top five favorite designs. Well, and I think that's a good topic to start with because we could talk. I mean, this kind of episode, we could probably spend 12 hours on alone. Um, but even even the original story of the Constitution class, how they only had like 12. Yes. That's that's a, 
people may not be aware of it, but that's like a thing in history where even when the United States was first making its first real wooden navy, and it was basing its design on a number of ships based on things like the number of colonies and the number of certain names they wanted to use, there was always like a thing that drove what they were going to build and how many they were going to build back then. That's like, that's naval tradition. Um, like today, even how they name certain carriers after famous people, it's tradition. And so like the first 12 constitution class ships, and then you go to a show like Battlestar Galactica, the, the old one and the new one is they had like one Battlestar for every one of the colonies. Mm-hmm. It's like, that's what they started with. And then they expanded kind of like the 12 constitutions. And like you pointed out during our discovery review was the Klingons considered the Constitution class like a game changer for the Quadrant. It was that powerful and modular of a ship. It could explore, it was fast, and it could do battle. Yeah, I mean, you know, it's hard It's hard to talk about the Constitution class in, in, in finite detail because there's so many variations on it over the years, right? You had the original version that we had on TV, and even that has you know, multiple variations to it depending on was it the cage pilot? Was it uh, where no man has gone before pilot? Was it the, you know, the, the Amir universe version and so forth. Um, and then when you get to the films, when it was refit, you know, it was even, even more different you know, the ships, the ships of course recognizable, but basically everything was changed within it because it had to be for a film. That's the real world answer. And you have a crew that in the original show, you know, Kirk's show, the crew was about 200 people, Right. Uh, Memory Alpha says 203 to be specific. Um, And then in the films, it's 430. You know, and so the refit doubles the capacity of the ship, um, which is, you know, I guess maybe that just means more bunk beds like we see in the undiscovered country on the A. Uh, But, you know, this this ship went from its infancy where there were just 12 copies of it. Right. We see the, you know, the defiant, there's the constitution and and so forth. And they're all exactly the same. And that is something that Star Trek continues to use later on, where you will see reused designs over and over again. The Excelsior class, the Oberth class, the galaxy class, these are all used time and time again, especially when you see, you know, anytime an admiral shows up on TNG, it's pretty much on an Excelsior class ship right <laughs> that's that's the joke yeah it's, it's, it's their personal excelsior right? yeah. yeah and then you know in the dominion war you see you know there's just a bunch of galaxy class starships and, and things of that nature and um that that makes a lot of sense whereas like you know certain other science fiction even star wars doesn't do this completely because even it has like multiple x-wings and multiple y-wings but there's a little more variety because a lot of those people it's their ship Right. Yeah, it's like it's it's owned by some family or some group, or the rebels are building ships out of whatever they can build, like a real rebellion group would do. And it, you kind of kind we kind of we've always joked about the whole Excelsior class admiral thing. <laughs> but so being the history nerd I am, because you know that's like my side profession as a historian. During the Gulf War, we actually reactivated one of our old battleships that was built in World War Two. Oh wow. Um, and it deployed to the Persian Gulf for fire support. And everybody's like, what are we doing reactivating this 50-year-old ship? And the Navy's like, because this 50-year-old ship has nine 16-inch guns that fire freight trains at the enemy. So we don't need to use our missiles because our missiles back then, we didn't have... We have we've been at war now for 20 years in the, 
right now. So we've got missiles everywhere. But in the first Gulf War, we didn't. So they were trying to conserve. And the Navy and the logistics staff were like, it's cheaper for us to reactivate and use this. And by the way, Iraqi troops were interviewed after the war, and they said even the sound of those guns was terrifying. And you kind of see that with Starfleet is they never really throw anything away. (laughs) It's like they keep it somewhere. And and you're right. And, you know, you can kind of extrapolate a bit because, like, just look at our commercial airline fleets, right? Mm -hmm. A lot of these planes have been in service for as long as I've been alive. You know, you're talking planes that are 25, 30, 35 years old that are still in service. And if that's in the 20th and 21st century, I would certainly hope that the lifespan of our vehicles has doubled by the 24th century. Yeah, yeah. I mean, look at the, the our, our even modern-day Navy, the submarines, the Los Angeles-class nuclear submarine. It's Some of them are 30 years old, and they're being removed out of service, not because they're breaking, because the Navy's like, well, we just don't need them. But they're fine. I mean, they're still maintenance because it's a nuclear reactor. But overall, the technology, the ships are still well-maintained. They're well-built. I mean, they could still use them. We're still flying B-52s that are yeah, 55 years old or something, and they still fly fine. And so the Federation does this. Now, what's interesting is you see Excelsior-class starships in the TNG DS9 Voyager era, but you don't see Constitution-class starships. And I think that's a very interesting question. Is it that none of them really survived and the ones that did were just so historic they were made into, you know, mothballed museums? Or, you know, were they put out of service because of a flaw that had been, you know, fixed by the ambassador class or something along those lines? What is it about the Excelsior class that kept people coming back to it? I wonder. My only, my belief is it was entirely writer story driven is because the Excelsior you only saw in Star Trek 3 doesn't really do anything but it it was a cool looking ship it still is a cool looking ship but they also I think they wanted to completely distinguish modern Star Trek from the original series that's my belief but you bring up a good point about the Excelsior and I'm kind of skipping ahead here but it's a great topic so the Excelsior is not only such an aged design that still holds up you remember the episode of DS9, what was it, Paradise Lost or Paradise Fallen, where they're worried about a Dominion infiltration of Earth, and Cisco's put in command, and the Lakota's trying to stop the Defiant, the Lakota's of an Excelsior class, mm-hmm. and the first time they fire on the Defiant, I can't remember if it was Kira or somebody, she's like, it looks like somebody's been upgrading that ship, because it just knocked our shield down 20%. Mm-hmm. It's like, in less than any time, they were able to upgrade that ship to essentially you know, 2480 standards, mm-hmm. 2380 standards, excuse me. Yeah. I mean, you know, maybe there's just something about its design that's more modular, you know, more upgradable, um, you know, because it's according to memory alpha, the Excelsior class starship was in service for 90 years from the 2280s to the 2370s. Um, and that's, that's a good long while. And I wonder if maybe it was just things like the Dominion War that finally pushed the Federation to say, we just need new stuff, you know, like like the Akira class and, and things like that. I mean, sometimes there is something to be said for just strength in numbers, get as many ships out there for the less the less important combat zones. But hell, I mean, the Dominion still took Beta Zoid or Beta Zed. So, I mean, obviously some of our fleets weren't doing so good. And that's actually, a, it's a joke Brent, my buddy Brent and I have been saying for years is, when the Dominion War first starts and the, I don't know, the Cisco's talking to the command crew and Bashir comes in. He's like, oh, we just heard from the 7th Fleet or whatever. 
And Cisco's like, oh, well, how's it going? He's like, well, only 12 ships made it back. And General Martok's like 12 out of 104. And at that point, you're like, holy shit, the Federation is not only losing, they're getting... I mean, imagine you and I go to work and we're like, sir, we just had a 90% failure rate. <laughs> On You know, it's so... it's Yeah, it's it's fun thinking about all the ships they put out. And I think you're right. The Dominion War created that realism. What was it? I don't think we ever heard about it. I don't think it's, I don't think it's Alpha Cannon. I think it's Beta Cannon. That whole Frankenfleet thing they did, where supposedly they were building ships just out of like whatever spare parts they had. I mean, there's some talk about that during the Dominion War, and I mean, in in the real world, there was lots of kit bashing, right? I mean, that's stuff that we saw during uh, Wolf Three Five Nine, for example, um, or the Battle of Wolf Three Five Nine. And, you know, that's just a real world way of making unique, different looking ships for cheap. But I, I think that's something that was used during the Dominion War to get some of these ships upgraded and, and out of mothballs because they were used for so long. Um, and, you know, I, maybe the Excelsior class makes sense because it was the next iter- iteration of the style used for the Constitution class. You know, it's the same kind of design, right? You've got your saucer, your secondary hull, and two nacelles. And it's basically the same structure. Um, but another ship was in service for basically the same amount of time, but it's a much stranger design. And that's the O'Berth class. The little science vessel that could. Yeah, I mean, it's a tiny freaking ship. Um, you know, it's, you know, when you think like Voyager's a tiny ship, right? Well, the crew of an O'Berth class was almost half of Voyager. And it was in service uh, for basically the same time the Excelsior class was. And I wonder if that's simply because it was just a science vessel and they could just keep upgrading the sensors, you know, and and putting in astrometrics labs wherever they wanted. Um, So there is a series of books that came out in the 80s. I think it's called like Jackal's Starfleet uh, Technical References for the Fleet. And it talks about the O'Berth classes. Apparently the O'Berth class was a series of designs that were extremely modular and one of them was a science class the O'Berth class but they could also apparently turn it into like a gunship there's a scout ship where yeah, yeah where they where it had the offensive firepower of like a battleship but didn't have the shields and armor it was basically there to be really fast get in there do some damage and get out mm-hmm. and the reason that that sticks into my mind is even though it's beta cannon but I'm also I'm considering an alpha is because there's a line in DS9 that uh, Gal Dukat says when the Dominion are attacking DS9 and after their first wave and, you know, Damar is like, oh, their shields are still holding. And the way Yoon's like, what's impossible? The Federation shields never can stand up to us. And Gal Dukat immediately responds with, I told you never to underestimate the Federation's technical skills. And so I do believe after something like Wolf 359... Well, even going back to the original series, because you have all the ongoing conflicts with the Romulans and Klingons, you've got the M5 computer incident, uh, and then you go into the movies, you have V'ger, you have a Khan, <laughs> you've, you've got Undiscovered Country with a cloaked ship that can fire, is I think it's really understood why the Federation kind of started going into a little bit more, you know, the the Galaxy class is a good one, it's, it's, it's a science exploration ship that's good at combat. Mm-hmm. The Sovereign, the next Enterprise, that's a warship. I mean, it may have families on board, but that is definitely a... Because of everything that was going on, dealing with the Borg, dealing with all the skirmishes with the Cardassians, the Dominion, that's a warship. And that's 
you know, a little new for Starfleet, that whole fleet of warships Cisco mentioned. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's a big difference. And I mean, just talking about like, that was one thing I always appreciated uh, from Ducat was that that statement, right? Because you look at what what Starfleet does, and they are very quick to adapt and to learn and to evolve their technologies. You look at the going back to the Constitution class, it goes from this relatively small 200 person ship, you know, with, a you know, that cruising speed of warp two. And then by the by the time you're done with the A, you know, it's it's it's, you know, able to hit warp nine. It's got a crew of over 400, you know, and that's a pretty big jump from the same structural designs that they that they had. And the next leap is that Excelsior class. And yeah, the, the trans warp drive is a complicated conversation when you deal with canon uh, because it's there one. Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Minute, and then it means something very different later. Um, but the design of the ship, the structure of the ship, you know, was considered very significant, very powerful. I mean, Sulu's ship, you, you know, was was very worthy, and for it to last ninety years, you know, continues down that line. And the Galaxy class is really where things kind of are like that's truly the next level. Right? We, we have the Ambassador class, which was the Enterprise C, um, and it's really just a smaller galaxy class, right? It's really what they, they kind of did. They retrofitted, um, you know, kind of working backwards, but the galaxy class is where everything really changes because you go from these essential like naval war vessels that were the constitution class. And the Excelsior class wasn't any, any different. There weren't families on the Excelsior class, but the galaxy class, you know, had a crew of, you know, a thousand people. There were family on board. There were children on board. It could hold 15,000 people in the event of an evacuation or a big diplomatic event. I mean, can you imagine? It's a floating city. Yeah, it really is. I mean, and even I, I, I have nothing good to say to that because you're right. I mean, people don't realize not only were their families on board, children were regularly born on the Enterprise. And it was it was a topic of conversation when Data made law and Picard's like, you know, you should have told us about law and Data's response was, well, do the other crew members tell you when they're having a child? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So it's something that the Enterprise D was, and it's, you know, it's unfortunate because we obviously, we get to know the Enterprise D so much compared to the C and even the B, which is just a weird Excelsior variant, yeah. variant with like an, with like an armored secondary hall type thing. Um, but you know what? It's just, uh, yeah, but the Enterprise D that's. It's actually not my favorite Enterprise design. And I know that's 
kind of spooky to some people in the modern era, but my favorite is still the Constitution class. So which Constitution class? I'm just curious. Uh, the, the refit. Okay. So my favorite, Enterprise. Um, and this actually is my favorite Starfleet ship design in all of Star Trek is the Dreadnought variant of the Galaxy class, the one that we see in all good things. That was... Okay, so that was phenomenal. I mean, hopefully they just built a ton of those. The, <laughs> the, the, the Galaxy X or something. Even though there's... There's one more comment I want to make in the galaxy. I mean, we can make as much as we want. Given early on, they only said they built a certain amount of galaxy class before the Dominion War. The Yamato was lost early to that to the Iconian virus. The Enterprise was destroyed young in its life. That class of ships has not had a good like run of luck. <laughs> um, it really has. I mean, that's fair. That's definitely a, a fair point. Um, you know, especially when you think like, well, if an Excelsior ship can can survive for 50, 60, 70 years, you know, and the Enterprise D is eight years old when it's destroyed. You know, give or take a few months. I'd have to look at the exact dates, right? But it's it's after the seventh season, <laughs> you know. Well, and, you know, it's it's one of those things is if Star Trek continues going forward the way it is, you know, eventually we're going to see some sort of some sort of gigantic enterprise that's like a carrier that's carrying like defiant classes, which is just going to be hilarious to me, even if it only carries like four. Well, of them. that that kind of leads <laughs> us to my least favorite enterprise design, which is the Enterprise J from. Oh, yeah, that's so the Enterprise weird. TV show where the where uh, archers uh, in the future with Daniels. Um, and it's, I mean, don't get me wrong. We don't get a great look at it and we have a much better look now that there's the Eagle Moss models of it. Um, but I just always thought it was very strange looking, very alien. And that's very, uh, that's on purpose, right? Because by this point in the future where we, you know, Starfleet, the Federation has, has evolved so much and so many species are involved, um, that the designs would depart and that's fine. Um, Whereas, you know, the, the Galaxy class looks much more like a UFO than even the original Enterprise. Uh, well, it's the gigantic primary hall. I mean, if that if that ship was in a gravity well, it would just immediately tip over. <laughs> um, so, so yeah, so that, that brings us to the Sovereign, the Sovereign class ship. And that's where things kind of are, get kind of confusing um, as far as, as the evolution of this kind of ship is concerned, because... Um, most of the data that we have on it is from the films, right? First Contact, mm -hmm. uh, Insurrection, and Nemesis. And there's a lot of discrepancies about, like, how many decks the ship has um, <laughs> or how long the ship is. I mean, First Contact brought up the issue. It's like, oh, we can't get to Shuttle Bay because the Borg. And you're like, you're looking at the schematics. You're like, are you sure? Because <laughs> you're here and the Shuttle Bay is here. But you're right. It's just discrepancies with story with story writing. Because well, like even so, like I, I wanted to make sure I got the data correct here, right? Um, because I'm a stickler for that, and I know a lot of Trekkies are too. And so on Memory Alpha, if you go to the page for the Sovereign class, there's an area under technical data called physical arrangement, and there's a whole section in here about why no one's really sure <laughs> what it is, because <laughs> Picard says in First Contact that it has 24 decks. But then later, Lieutenant Daniels in the same movie says 26 decks. And then in Nemesis, both Data and Worf refer to a deck 29. 
<laughs> this is like the hotels that don't have the level third, like the the, the floor thirteen. <laughs> but but then, if you were to go back to the original blueprint designs for the ship that Rick Sternbach made, there's twenty three decks. So, <laughs> so there's like eight different. I mean, it's like twenty three to twenty nine. But what's really interesting about that though is, regardless, but twenty three to twenty nine doesn't matter. The Enterprise D, the Galaxy class, had forty two decks. Yeah, and we saw plenty of them, plenty of times them crawling through those damn Jeffrey tubes, which has just got to be the worst. But no, I mean, you bring up a good point, and I know some people laugh when fans enjoy the details, but to me, the details are everything. It's why when First Contact came out, me, like so many other fans, we saw some of those new ships, like the Akira class, just unloading torpedoes on the board cube, and one of the writers is like, oh yeah, the, the Akira class has 18 torpedo tubes, and everybody's like, What? Like, okay, that's that's a lot. And then they retconned it or whatever. They changed it. It's like, no, 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 it only has like four. Because people are like, 18? You're like, why? Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's like, did that, at that point, you get, might as well just have a ship that is a torpedo tube. Um, but again, it's the differences in decks because, you know, the details are important. The details are fun. Otherwise, why even bother doing it? Well, and I think it's important to kind of help with the comparison's sake of what it is that you're looking at, right? Because we have to make a lot of guesses, um, a lot of the time with these ships. So, for example, with the Sovereign class, we don't really know its crew size. What we do know, based on the three films that we see it in, is that it is a harsher vessel. It appears to be more militaristic. It seems to be more cut and lean than the Galaxy class ever was. You know, the Galaxy class was the Disney cruise liner, right? <laughs> and the Sovereign yep. seems much more like a speedboat with a bunch of weapons on it, <laughs> you know, like, I don't know, Guile's ship from the street fighter movie. <laughs> <You know? laughs> wow. It's a deep cut there. We're, 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 are we really going to, you know, street fighter movie? I was M bison going to be in the background. Well, look, that, the boat is the best part of that movie. Uh, <laughs> Guile's boat. But, um, you know, but that's really like the sovereign class, you know, as a very different take. And it's an interesting question because how does it compare? Why was it designed? as the next step after the galaxy class galaxy class was it because they needed they they wanted fewer civilians on board because of the borg and the dominion war was it that they needed more nimble ships you know the sovereign class is a much smaller vessel at 685 meters it's a much smaller ship it's got you know 20 18 fewer decks depending on you know the layout um I, I want to know like the reasoning behind that, the thought process, because it's a cool design. I like the Sovereign class. I think it's a very sexy design for a ship. It is badass, and the first time that you see it, it is gorgeous. And when it swoops in in, in first contact, um, you know when when Worf's on the Defiant, and you know um, <laughs> Adam Scott, uh, uh, you know talks about um, you know that the Enterprise is coming in. It's a gorgeous shot of that. And the, sh- oh, yeah, the ship is. looks massive in that scene. Everything else around it. Oh, it looks it looks huge. But it's not huge. It's like two thirds <laughs> the size of a galaxy class <laughs> ship. So yeah. it's very interesting. And I want to know. I want to know the why. Because the Defiant, we learned so much about the Defiant. We learned so much about Voyager. And the Sovereign class, just we, we don't really get to know much because it's just those three films. Well, and... So I, I just realized we skipped over something that oh. really quick because we talked about the Excelsior, but we don't talk about the Miranda class mm. that also survives. And 
to me, my thinking is because the Reliant was so well received by fans. I mean, everybody likes the Reliant. It's a cool looking ship. Star Trek Two is one of the probably the best Star Trek film. Always, always one or two. Um, but again, I think it's because it was a little assault frigate type thing, so they could build it easily, even into the 24th century. Although, you know, we got the Nebula class, which is kind of like a modern Miranda class, almost. Yes, I, I so I agree with you completely. I can't believe I forgot about the Reliant. Um, the Miranda class starship is a super cool design. I've always loved that style. I thought it was really unique. Um, I I've always had some story issues with, with Wrath of Khan with the way how powerful they made the Miranda class seem, given that, <laughs> that it's yeah. a pure science vessel. Um, but it's a frigate that does science. It's a cool ship. Yeah. It's a beautiful design. Yeah. Um, and I think I think you're right they, in that the Nebula class basically replaces it. Because Well, and they don't do the let's be real though, the Miranda does not do well against the Dominion. No. Like at all. I don't think we see a single one survive. No, and I mean how could it, right? It's it's basically a rectangle in space. You know? Um it'd be hard to miss it. And they're not you know, they're not particularly you know, maneuverable, the they're they're slow, they're they're old, they're 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 only like four or five decks. They're they're small ships, right? They only hold like thirty people. Um, you know, when you're talking about size of ship, that's like the smallest one on this list. The O birth class holds, I think 50 people, if I remember right. Um, no, 80, 80 people in the O birth class. And you're talking about, you know, 30 people on the Miranda class, but the Nebula class is interesting because one of the things the Miranda class has, and there's some, there's some offshoot classes of it is that those modules that you can swap out. There's some different configurations, and some of them were more geared towards towards battle. The Nebula class is a similar concept. It's got the it's got mostly Galaxy class features. It's got the same saucer section. It's got the same secondary hull, same nacelles, but they're organized differently, and they have this module on top. And that module can be swapped out for different things. Some of them are just straight up weapons arrays, torpedo bays, and phasers. Others are scientific modules for studying you know um there's some cool different things that they can do there and i thought it was a really clever way to reuse parts for a completely different kind of ship which makes complete sense because even in real life being because i'm also a naval nut is you have the ticonderoga you know aegis missile cruiser and you have the arley burke aegis missile destroyer their technology and some of their components are very similar to each other the arley burke is newer so it's got better construction and a little bit sleeker. But a lot of the components are like generational differences versus design differences. And the, the Ticonderoga is bigger because it's a cruiser. But you, you bring up the point because even and the, the, the Nebula class is apparently so modular. You remember the episode with the Phoenix when the old Scotty's old captain goes a little rogue? I mean, he's destroying Cardassian ships with like two shots, including like battleships, which... That's obviously a Nebula class that didn't have a science module on top. Maybe it was outfitted as more of a combat vessel for deep range patrol or something. And that's, that's to me, that's a very Federation thing to do. You build a ship that's modular and you can change it up based on mission needs. And I think that that's important, right? I mean, the idea that these ships would be used for different purposes over different amounts of time and hoping that they would stay in service for decades being able to swap those things out was a big deal. I mean, one of the things that you could do actually was instead of having that module on top was 
to swap in a third nacelle. Yeah. You know, so it could go even faster. I mean, in that case, what is it? A rescue vessel, maybe, to evacuate people. You know, um, I mean, it's got that huge saucer section. It can probably hold a few thousand people on board. Well, and that's what I always loved about the Constellation class. You know, the old Stargazer oh, design with the four nacelles. Yeah. Is even reading about it is they never, they very rarely used all four nacelles at once. They would cycle two at a time to increase engine endurance, so it could go. It wouldn't be going warp 9.9975, but it could go warp, you know, 9.5 for a longer time than other Federation ships. And that actually brings me back to something when we were talking about the original series. Remember Voyage Home? Everybody remembers Star Trek Four, <laughs> But they're on the Klingon ship as they're, as they're getting ready to go around the star. And it's like warp five and the ship's already like yes. shaking. And you're like, wow. <laughs> you know, you go like warp nine and a Starfleet ship and you're like, it. You don't even know. But you go warp five, six, seven on a Klingon ship, and it is. I, I like that because Klingon ships were p- primarily designed for combat first. A warrior species with warrior ships. You know the the kid the um, Kobayashi Maru going up against three Klingon battle cruisers. It's not. You know it's supposed to be the no win scenario because their ships are so strong. And you go to the Federation ships that are just a little bit more technical, better with speed. And like you said, the Nebula, you can swap out modules. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that the con- the Constellation class is an interesting design because I, I always found it visually really cool. But it's a weird-looking ship. It's kind of like a Reliant, but with four nacelles. Or a Miranda class, well, excuse and, me. Yeah, and not only that, but it's hard to visualize where some of the components of the ship are. Like, okay, obviously for those of you listening, Derek and I are Star Trek nerds, <laughs> but things like... Things like the deflector array that's used to push micrometeorites out of the way. Where is it? Is it on the front of the Stargazer? I think it's on the front of the saucer, if I remember okay. correctly. But even then, it's it's without without some kind of secondary hull, it does throw you off a bit on number of crew, number of the size of the ship. Because, yeah, the Miranda class, 35, 45 people. I mean, Khan had, what, 50? So his people were more than the crew of the Reliant. I mean, basically, yeah. <laughs> And I mean, even the Constellation class only had a crew of about 40 people, you know, so these were smaller ships. And so like when you have, um, you know, Riker trying to fight the, you know, the Enterprise in the, in the war games, uh, it's a, it's kind of a little silly because you've got this truly massive 42 deck thousand person vessel against a 40 person vessel that's got like, I don't know, one, two, three, four, six decks maybe on the Constellation class. Um, you know, it's it's just it's interesting to see how the designs evolved and how when they need to bring in an older design like the Ambassador class or the Constellation class, how they were able to kind of retrofit um, these designs in. I thought really they did a good job overall. It all feels very cohesive. You know, when you think of a Starfleet vessel, um, but you know. Of course, things change in Deep Space Nine. They change in Voyager. Uh, we start going in a different direction. So before we go that route, is there anything pre-kind of DS9 era that you want to touch on? I mean, not not too much, because even with Next Generation, the bulk of ships we see is either the Galaxy class or the Excelsior class. I think we see, we see the Oberth a couple times. But we don't see a tremendous amount of variety. Even Wolf 359, we don't see the battle. It's the limitation of technology and money. So even when you see the wrecked ships, you're like, eh, 
there's the New Orleans class. And you're like, New Orleans class? You're like, what, what the hell's the New Orleans class? And you look it up online and you're like, okay, that's just some artist rendering of what they think right. it was. So, yeah, I mean, DS9 is, I think, where they truly got into the variety. Because even, even Cisco's ship, the Saratoga, was like a Miranda class, but it wasn't. Exactly. <laughs> it, was a, it was another variant. Which, if I'm going to battle with the Borg, a Miranda class is not what I want to be <laughs> no. on. Just it's F- definitely not. FYI. Okay, so then let's do this. We'll take a short break, and when we come back, we'll move on then to the DS9 era and later as far as Starfleet ship designs are concerned. Recently on the Heroes Podcast Network, Echo Station. Well, what's the main think... what's the main planet that Endor, the forest moon of Endor? It's a moon. So it's there's a major planet obviously that it Is the forest moon of Endor is Endor the actual planet then? See, th- isn't that confusing? <laughs> yes. Is it the forest moon of the planet Endor or is it the forest moon called Endor? Kaiju Curry House. Cuz I'm just wondering, are Pokémon Kaiju? They are pocket monsters. They are pocket monsters, Paul. They're, pocket, they're monsters, yeah, aren't they? They're, um, just... they're, so... They are yokai, officially. <laughs> yokai. Yeah, so, um... What's like... a yokai? Screen heroes. If the MCU gets that, then I really think that Space Jam needs to be part of the DCEU. Yes! Okay, because... <laughs> they have a big Marvel versus DC <laughs> crossover where Air Bud takes on Space Jam. <laughs> Man, we should write for these companies. <laughs> That's it's Air Bud versus Bugs Bunny. That's, That's what it's right. all come down to. One-on-one. Yes, done. All right. And then, like, at the end, it's Galactus versus LeBron James. And oh, Squirrel Girl wins. <laughs> Subscribe today at HeroesPodcast.com, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Spreaker, Podcast Addict, and more. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car, before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. All right, we are back. So we're talking Starfleet ship designs. We've kind of wrapped up the original series through most of TNG. Uh, we've talked a bit about the Sovereign class as well from the uh, the three films. But let's kind of focus a bit on DS9 and Voyager. So we're talking Starfleet so that we won't discuss Tarak Nor. Um, but I do want to talk about, before we get into you know, the Defiant, which is really the meat I want to talk about the runabouts for a minute. Um, they're not really starships, but they're also not shuttles. And I just wanted your take, Greg, on your opinion for the runabouts that we get in DS9. It almost feels like the original intent was to give them... I've already used the term before, but like give the, sh- the station like three little gunships to use. Because apparently they have like photon torpedoes. They don't have a lot, but they have high-capacity warp. They have, like, a medical unit. Uh, They have a sleeping room. I mean, so they're small ships, large shuttles. But, I mean, hell, even the battle with the Odyssey against the Dominion, the Federation sent three runabouts, and they're like, yeah, the runabouts are definitely going to help the Odyssey. And they're only going up against, like, what, three Jem'Hadar fighters, and it doesn't go well. (laughs) Which is good. I mean, they did that on purpose to show how powerful the Dominion was. I like that. But the runabouts are that weird hybrid of 
too big to be a shuttle, too small to be a starship, what am I? Because they, they are rather large. Like, the crew complement says, like, four on Memory Alpha, but they seem significantly larger than that. And, you know, they, they have different modules that can be attached on top as well, uh, so they continued with that modularity. And, you know, they're, they're able to hit Warp 5, which, you know, is actually faster than the cruising speed of the original Enterprise. <laughs> um, yep. But... I don't know. I thought it was. I thought it was kind of like a, a bit of a cop out, where they were like, okay, well, we don't want to give them a starship because we want them to be on the space station, and everyone's like, well, they have to be able to go places though. Well, yeah, they'll, they'll use the shuttles. Like, we're not going to use those slow, bulky shuttles from TNG, guys. Yeah, the, the Mark IV shuttle. <laughs> yeah. No, like, fine, we'll give you a cooler looking shuttle. It's bigger. It goes faster, and that's what they did. Yeah, because. It almost seems like that they were given them that they were supposed to go out into the Gamma Quadrant and do like a one week of search and then come back. But they never really, we never really see that. We see it a few times, don't get me wrong, where they're out exploring something and Cork and Odo crash. <laughs> um, but we, we, yeah, I mean, it's like I said, it's that weird just hybrid of what am I? Am I a ship? Am I a shuttle? I, I don't know. And... I just thought about something during our break, and it's 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 touching on an old topic, but it, it'll make us laugh. Is so my belief is the reason the old Constitution went from like two hundred crew to four hundred was to make room for all the shuttles that Captain Pike needed to fight Section Thirty One. That's why. <laughs> nope, I'm never letting that go. I mean, it's an interesting point. It's an interesting point. Um, so we're just adding two hundred pilots? Like, yeah, just trust. It'll me. be fine. It'll, be <laughs> it'll fine. work out. It'll be fine. No, but yeah. So what are, you, what are your takes on, on overall on the runabout? You think it was just kind of uh, almost like a story idea that they kind of abandoned? No, I mean, they don't – I wouldn't say they abandoned it. I think I think the problem straight up was that it was a cop-out. They were told they can't have a starship because it has to be on the space station. But they still needed something that was better than those bulky shuttlecrafts that we got on TNG because TNG hardly ever used them. And so it was okay that they were slower, that they were boxier, that they couldn't really put up a fight. They needed something here that they could do something with. And I think that if DS9 made any mistakes, it was waiting so long to give them something like the Defiant. So I have a conspiracy theory for the Defiant. Okay. So as I've brought up on the show multiple times, I'm also a fan of Babylon 5, which aired right around the same time as DS9. Well, early on with Babylon 5, as they always had other ships involved, but they basically, the captain of Babylon 5 essentially got an assault frigate assigned to him that was called the White Star. And it was a very powerful, mixed design. But it was tiny. It didn't have that many people. And its sole purpose was basically to fight a war. And then, like, a year later, here comes the Defiant. <laughs> it two shows, each on space stations. Each, But you're right, though, is... No matter what we want, you can do a lot of interesting stories on a space station. But something Star Trek has always been about is explore, exploration. Meeting new species, doing this, doing that. You know, introducing the Dominion gives a reason why DS9 needed the Defiant. You know, because they're like the Dominion. Or, hell, they rammed a Galaxy-class ship. You know, why'd they ram it? They were running away. And Cisco's like, they're showing us how far they go. And, you know, that's when Cisco's on the horn to, the, to headquarters going, all right, I need something. I worked on the Defiant. Give me the Defiant. 
No, I'm with you there. I really think at the end of the day, they just wanted something that looked better than the shuttles because they were going to have to use them, you know, especially the, the going back and forth from Bezier to the station and things like that. They were just shot a lot. Um, and let's let's talk about the Defiant. So the Defiant is something very new for us when it was first revealed in Star Trek. Up until this point, we had starships and those starships had shuttles and that was it. But this this is something very special. This was designed for battle. It's a 50-person crew. It's five decks. It has just a shit ton of weaponry attached to it. Um, it is very, very fast. It is incredibly nimble. Um, hell, the front end of it was actually designed to shoot off with quantum torpedoes inside of it to basically be like a last-ditch effort ramming explosion device. Um you know, it, it had the cloak from the Romulans. It had a blade of armor, which was a new concept uh, in Star Trek at the time. This thing was meant for war. It was meant to fight the Borg, and it was used, of course, to fight the Dominion. Um, it was considered an escort-type ship, which I always found, found that kind of a funny name for something because it, it, doesn't, it doesn't sound as intense as it actually is. Yeah, I mean, it's not escorting you know supply ships to bajor not quite <laughs> not quite um but the design i mean well, it can <laughs> but the design was also a complete departure because every starship we've talked about up until this point had nacelles it had warp nacelles now some were you know oblong some were round you know um rectangular like the the refit of the constitution class and the miranda class um you know you had what the galaxy class and the nebula class had there were there were some different styles but there were always these dedicated warp nacelles the defiant doesn't have those it's got like built-in nacelles that are just kind of part of the hull there's no there's no secondary hull there's no um you know standing nacelles it's all one piece and yeah and, and my my only complaint of the defiant is a ship like that, in, even Cisco mentions it, it was the first of a design, but it was overpowered, over overgunned for its size and shape and all that. Is a ship like that, on its own, isn't entirely useful? I mean, one-on-one -on -one against a Lakota does fine, but it's also holding back. I mean, I think Worf even realizes, like, if I just fire the Quantums, I'm going to destroy the Lakota, and I can't do that. But it almost feels like... There was supposed, and Cisco says it. There was supposed to be like a fleet of ships like the Defiant, and we hear about the Akira, we hear about the Steam Runner, and a few of the other ones that are like these warships. But the Defiant is the only one we get to know with any kind of level of uh, intimacy is the wrong word, but you kind of get what I mean with that. Where you get to know the insides and outs of the Defiant, you know, when they're in the crew quarters and there's no pictures, right. <laughs> there, there's no there's no furniture. There's like a bed. And a table with a chair at the replicator, and that's it. Well, I felt like the Defiant was as close as Star Trek got at the time, because, of course, Enterprise is a, is a separate conversation, the show, Enterprise. But it was as close as we got to, like, an actual, like, submarine. Oh, yeah, no, I know, yeah. I know what you mean. Um, limited space, and you make the best use of all available space that you Everyone's can. Everyone's bunked up together. You know, you don't have these big quarters um, you know, the, the mess hall is, it's very utilitarian. It doesn't have a lot of the luxury stuff that, 
you know, the Federation's made fun fun of a lot by non-Federation members, right? It's like what Quark makes fun of when he talks about the root beer, <laughs> you know, how bubbly it is, uh, just like the Federation. <laughs> you remember uh, Unification when they're on the Klingon ship and they roll out the bed and they yes. pull out the bed and he slaps it and he's like, we do not weaken our bodies with mattresses. Picard's like, good. <laughs> <laughs> just the way I like it. I'm like, there's not a single person alive that wants to sleep on steel. <laughs> it's just never going to happen. Uh, but the, the Defiant gets close, right? It, it removes all of those those niceties, those, those luxuries, um, because it's for battle. That's what it was originally designed for. And so when they take it out, they're not having fun on the defiant at least not often right um and i think that's you know why it was a good decision for ds9 because there's no reason for them to be on it all the time they'd rather be on the space station right they'd rather go to quarks and and hang out in their nice big quarters and and travel down to bajor maybe a little bit um and i'm trying to i'm firing from the hip right now but i think even in a few episodes is even when there's other people on the Defiant that aren't Starfleet, they have, like, restricted access. They're not allowed to see certain... I think that happened. They're not allowed to see certain parts of the ships of the ship because to Starfleet, it's still a warship. This is, like, our first warship we've dedicated to build for one purpose, and the purpose is to destroy. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I think, I think you're absolutely right. And, um, I mean, it, it was the first Federation ship to have a approved cloaking device we could obviously talk about the tng episode pegasus but um you know the defiant had a cloaking device at least the first defiant had a cloaking device uh the sao paulo which became the defiant later did not have a cloaking device um but you know it was just a very interesting ship it was really different and it's kind of contrasted by the next ship that we get which is voyager so you know, we had the you know the original Star Trek had this big Constitution class naval vessel. T- TNG had the Disney cruise liner. Yeah, DS Nine had the warship, and so Voyager has the science vessel, the state of the art. The science, yep, the science and exploration absolutely vessel. Absolutely state of the art with the, the you know the bio gel packs and the 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 warp nacelles that would fold up to create a more. Um, sophisticated warp bubble um the the intrepid class starship i always thought was a really sleek and cool design when you see the prototype designs that they have i am so glad that they simplified it down to what kind of feels organic yeah if it's a natural looking ship it's i think it's good looking i do like the warp nacelles i like that it can still it's the it's a federation ship so it's still like even if it's primarily science and exploration, it's still good at combat. It's still good at defense. It's not great, you know, it's not going to take on a Sovereign. Or it's not going to take on the Negvar, that Klingon flagship they built for Galron. <laughs> but it can still defend itself, which has always been kind of a staple of Starfleet is, you know, even the O'Berth class has like two phasers and a torpedo launcher or something. It can still defend it. It's not supposed to, but it still can. Um I mean, you look at you look at our modern day science vessels now. You're like, oh, they don't have weapons. <laughs> it's, like, it's like, no, they don't. They, the Navy's not going to do that. They get you have an anchor. You can throw it at somebody. That's pretty much it. <laughs> um, you know, Voyager's a very interesting ship because it's also tiny. It's only 15 decks. It's a crew of 140 ish, um, and 
it was incredibly quick. It was very fast. It was very nimble. And it had these state of the art the technology the state of the art technology it was a brand new kind of warp core, you know, brand new gel packs, no more isolinear chips, um, which I thought was a nice kind of to see the evolution of that technology. I think the problem that the Intrepid class has in Star Trek is the unfortunate case of the only one we ever really see being Voyager, and its power set being constantly upgraded by alien technology to fit whatever the story was going to be. Oh yeah. Borg <laughs> upgrades, this upgrade, that upgrade, blah, blah, blah. You're like, okay. I mean, yeah, you bring up a good point. And it did have one of my favorite features. And that was the fact that the whole ship, the whole thing could actually land on purpose on mm-hmm. a planet. And this was so cool because, you know, the enterprises couldn't do that. Um, you know, we, we were always sending shuttles down or beaming people down or whatever. And Voyager could land. Not only could it land, but it lands in the first episode. <laughs> um, well, speaking of Voyager, we see a few other Federation ships that we could talk about. You know, the the episode with the Prometheus, which is kind of weird. Well, it's that's not really di- a Starfleet it, ship, it, though. It's not a Starfleet. Yeah, you're right. But the only, the reason I bring it up is... The only other Starfleet ship we get to know, and it's driving me crazy. I've got access to all sorts of internet around me. I could look it up. It's that one scout ship that was also thrown back with them by the caretaker. Oh, oh, oh. Uh, I, I keep wanting to call it the Rubicon, but it's not, because that's the name of one of the of one of the runabouts. And look, Derek and I are recording this. I could cheat, but I'm trying to fire it the from memory. Because the Equinox, it was another science ship. Yes. But it was a drastically different looking science ship than because the Intrepid class was like an exploration slash science ship, whereas the Equinox was a Nova Nova class science vessel. That's what it was. It was designed primarily for science, and it got it got jacked up in its time in the Delta. What Water. I liked about that class of starship, the um, the the Nova class, is that it was basically the precursor to the Intrepid class. Right. If you look at its design philosophies, it's got a front end that's very similar to Voyager, um, except you know it's got the um, the deflector is inside the the primary hole. Uh, the secondary holes just kind of back there. It's got standing nacelles that are kind of similar to a Sovereign class nacelle actually, um, but it's a smaller ship. It's got half the crew complement. It's got half the number of decks, and I just thought it was a really cool kind of jump to be like, okay, so we went from the the Nova class to the Intrepid class. Well, and I think it it even fits the story of what they did with the whole Equinox, where Jane Wayne Company are kind of judging the crew, and the one surviving senior officer was basically like, "I have not, I had no resources. Look at my ship. My ship was not designed to be gone from Starfleet for more than like six months or something. My ship was a small science vessel <laughs> trying to survive on its own and." It doesn't mean you're proud to see Starfleet act that way, but there's a certain logic that every human understands when you're in command, you're trying to take care of your people, and you know you're like, my ship's never going to survive 70 years back to home. <laughs> you know, even even in early on in Voyager, Janeway and company were pretty confident, like, oh, it's going to take 70 years, but we'll get there. It's like the Nova class, you get the impression, no, it, it well, will Well, because not. I think it, those two ships show the same dichotomy that we were just talking about with the Defiant which is the Intrepid doesn't really have the niceties. It doesn't have the luxuries. There's no holodeck, let alone two holodecks. 
You know, there's no there's no EMH. There's no uh, you know galley with a cook and you know massive cargo bay that they could turn into whatever they want. Um, I don't even know if the ship could land if they did find a planet they wanted to land on. I'm not even sure about that. It was it was much smaller, and when you have half the space and half the crew, there's just less technology involved. Voyager had a lot of really positive things. It had all this new technology, you know, so it was significantly faster, um, you know, than than the uh, the Nova class would have been. And it it is an interesting comparison because even though Voyager is a smaller ship than what we might have been might have been used to in Star Trek, it's like the big sibling in this episode equinox well and i like that even the writers they used like a nova class ship because if they sent back like you know an akira class battle cruiser it's like well that ship's gonna be fine (laughs) it's it's got technology it's got armament it's got luxury the akira class is gonna be okay um and the voyager's kind of like in the middle where it's got all this technology and amenities but it doesn't necessarily have the power and so that's why they have to kind of come up with all these fun plans all the time and just finishing my rewatch of Voyager not too long ago, it's they do a lot more tricky stuff to make it through compared to some of the other. I mean, the Defiant class was that's a sledgehammer. When Cisco wanted to get something done, they fire their pulse cannons and quantum torpedoes and they blast their way through. You know, the Voyager, the Intrepid class is not going to do that. So, and that's no, I, I think you're absolutely right. I was actually about to say that I, I made a mistake earlier. And I want to retract something that I said right here on the show. When you mentioned the Prometheus, I was actually thinking of a different ship. You're talking about the state-of-the-art vector ship from Message in a Bottle where Andy Dick plays the EMH Mark II. And we never ever see that ship ever again. I was unfortunately confusing it with the alien ship. Uh, and I've, I'm, I, my brain's scattered right now. There's that alien they meet that's trying to trick Voyager because Voyager helped the Borg fight species 8472. Uh, okay, okay, I and got it, I got it. And creates the ship that appears to be Starfleet, appears to be a Federation ship, but yeah. it's not. The whole thing's a trick. Um, that's what I thought you were talking about. T- totally my Okay. Bad. Well, no, I mean, but that's the thing is they introduced the Prometheus with this tribe vector attack thing that can apparently destroy a warbird in 10 seconds or less. And you think a ship like that, they would build a fleet of those. And again, we never hear from it ever again. Like, it's not even hit. I don't even know if there's books about yeah, it. Yeah, I don't know. Um, because you know, maybe it's just too complex of a design. Um, you know, we maybe it's they maybe they said, like, this is a little bit too much God mode. Almost. Well, they- the ship can Part do, of the problem yeah. is, is that from a from a canon perspective, we don't have much from the Federation after this point. You know, Voyager goes home, and that's it. That's basically all that we know. We have Nemesis. And in Nemesis, we don't get to see much from the Federation. It's really Romulans. So maybe the Prometheus is around all the time. Maybe... Maybe that class of starship, which was called the Prometheus class because it was the only ship, uh, you know, maybe there are a bunch of them. Maybe, you know, there's a bunch of Andy Dicks running around <laughs> in, in the Federation. I don't well, know. <laughs> oh, God. Let, let's hope not. <laughs> um, but I will say message in a bottle. So all of us have that thing where we divide up certain parts of our favorites. You know, this is my favorite ship or this is my favorite character or this is my favorite side character. Blah, blah, blah. 
Message in a Bottle has my favorite, I think, five-second sequence in all oh, really? of Star Trek. Which is when Andy Dick and the, the Doctor are working to get control of the Prometheus. And the Federation sends three ships, the two Defiance and yes. the Akira class. And it's when they all three come in and, like, guns blazing. I'm like, that is just... Like, even to a Romulan, you'd have to think a Romulan's intelligent enough to go, shit, <laughs> two Defiance and an Akira class battle cruiser, and they just came in firing. There was no, there was no hail. <laughs> there was no stand down, like, you know, you would typically think Starfleet would do. Nope, they're like, they're taking over the Prometheus and we're going to attack all the ships we see at the exact Guns same place. I mean, the Dominion War had happened. The Federation's like, we're not screwing around anymore. You, you want to fight? Yeah, Let's we, fight. Let's do this. Exactly. You know, because I think what's interesting about Starfleet, uh, specifically as it as it comes to the, the the fleets of ships, is you know they're always talked about as like the weaker group, right? They're always the underdog in all of these battles. But you know, they got they they created a treaty with the Klingons. The Klingons didn't win. The Romulans didn't win the Romulan War. No, we nuked their um, homeworld. And the, <laughs> the Dominion weapons. and the Cardassians, they didn't win either. And yeah, they're the good guys. So narratively, they're going to win more often than not. But if you want to look at it from a future historical perspective, the Federation was able to be on the winning side of at least three massive wars. Four, if you want to count the battles against the Borg, they do come out on top at the end of the day. And... Maybe it's because the ships, they it is the technology, it's the people, it's the ingenuity behind them that they they can kind of create these unique situations. And then you give them that that post-war feel of we're not going to get pushed around right now. And so then they've got the Defiant and the Akira class and they're just going to come flying in because 10 years ago they didn't have that. These, these poor schmucks were on an Excelsior class, you know? Well, and even... And again, obviously, I know Star Trek isn't real, but it is. It's documentary of the future, <laughs> Derek. Wish. I've been I saying wish. this forever. But but even so, think about. Okay, let's put this into perspective. Let's let's talk the first Borg invasion in twenty three sixty nine. Best of both worlds is they're able to get through parts of Romulan space untouched. They're able to get through the entire Federation. They're able to wipe away one entire fleet of forty ships, and get to Earth with basically not even flinching. Imagine if tomorrow, all right, the president goes on TV and he's like, uh, the Russians have just attacked Washington, D.C. We've got 20,000 casualties and D.C. has been taken. The whole country would be like, what the, like, what, how did, did we fight? Did we not fight? What would he, imagine that culture shock to the Federation. We're like, holy shit, we literally almost lost. <laughs> so yeah, building a defense fleet, not only does it make sense. There's probably people in Starfleet that have been saying, you know, we probably should have, should have been, probably should have listened to Admiral Cartwright back in, you know, Star Trek VI, the undiscovered country, and <laughs> built this war fleet a hundred years ago. It's an interesting conversation because a lot of the ships that we've talked about have some pretty substantial firepower: the Constitution, the Galaxy, the Sovereign, the Defiant. Um, but so many of them don't. So many of them are science vessels, yeah. you know. Um, the Intrepid and the Nova and the Constellation and the Oberth and the Miranda. These are all science ships. They're exploration ships. So that's why I, I think this is probably a good time then for Greg, for you to talk about what I think is your favorite ship. And that's. Oh, the Akira, the Akira class. It is. 
Aside from why I think the name is amazing. <laughs> That's fair. Because <laughs> it means it means there's an anime fan somewhere in the 2380s designing a <laughs> ship. He's like, this battle cruiser. It's like, is there an Evangelion Ooh. class? Because <laughs> that would be even better. But there's something I always loved about the... We only see it very minimally in Voyager and First Contact. But you read about it online. You see the sleek design. It's It's like a modern day... It's very futuristic. It's sleek. It's all one unit. It's all one piece. It doesn't appear to have individual like secondary hulls that are attached by something. It's 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 a battle cruiser. Its sheer purpose is conflict. And the five second scene of it we see in first contact when it's just unloading on the board cube, you're like, man, this this would have been valuable during Wolf Three Five Nine, and it makes sense where the design isn't overtly elegant it's not overtly complex it's not doesn't separate like the enterprise or the prometheus it doesn't land like the intrepid it was designed like the defiant it's designed for war so it appears to be a little bit more simple with some of its capacity but man do i love it and maybe i love it because the only akira class ship that's in canon is the thunder child that has a name yeah yeah, that has a name, which is from War of the Worlds. Uh, that's the British cruiser. That's the British uh, cruiser that rams one of the tripods nice. and destroys it. And so, I mean, there's a, a chap, you know, chapter called the Thunder Child. I'm like, that's just. That's I never made biased. that connection. That's that's but, nice. But yeah, it's the Akira class. Ever since I saw it in first contact, I was like, what is that? I have one of the Eagle Mosses up on my railing. <laughs> I'm just going to buy 15 more Akira class Eagle Moss. Well, so, okay, so there's something interesting about the Akira class. I like it too, so I don't mean this as a negative. But if you look at its design, it kind of looks like an upside down NX01. Oh, now I'm never going to be able to unsee <laughs> and, that. Now, the Akira class was first, right? Because <laughs> it is in first contact, it's in DS9 uh, a bunch of times during some of the big battle sequences. So it was first. And I'm wondering if the design for the NX-01 Enterprise was based heavily off the Akira or not, because they're basically the same size ship. The saucer is almost identical. The difference is the big supports that are on the top of the Akira class are just not really there, and the, the Enterprise kind of has them connected underneath. Uh, but they're very, very similar designs. And I just think that's interesting. Well, I mean, I'm, I'm yeah, I'm pulling up the designs right now. You are not wrong. <laughs> they are... It is literally like they took the Akira class and flipped it upside down and said, oh, NX-01. I mean, even the little middle connection spot. It's very similar. It's a little more pronounced in the Akira class. Um, and maybe that was on purpose. I don't know. But um, it's just kind of funny because – and I've seen some people kind of complain about it. I'm not complaining. I, I think it's just a fun coincidence. But um, it's interesting that like maybe this design is really like 200 years old by this point because – <laughs> the NX-01s, like, from a structural standpoint, is basically the same. Obviously, the, the interior would be completely different, right? Because the Akira class has state-of-the-art weapons and, and warp drive and all that. Um, but I just think it's a fun kind of bookend because the Akira is one of the later ships that we're introduced to in Star Trek. And it looks almost exactly like what, chronologically speaking, would be, like, one of the first ships. Well, I just... Uh... I was just Googling while we were talking about it. Somebody put a side-by-side -side image and they circled all the similar parts that were used on the models. It's, it's... <laughs> and 
There's a decent amount of them. I, I've never given it that much thought. I mean, there's something to be said for the consistency in Starfleet, right? That the ship designs all share certain attributes that really there's some outliers. The Sovereign class is a bit of an outlier. The Defiant is a bit of an outlier. But you see so many of these other ones where the Akira and the NX class, the Nebula and the Galaxy, right? The Constitution and the Excelsior. Um, you know, there's just – there's so many similarities with these that you can tell they're they're created by the same organization that has the same goals, a lot of the same people on these teams. And it's just kind of an interesting kind of back and forth about wh- which direction these designs take over time. I mean, hell, if you look at just the top-down silhouette of the Akira and the NX, I mean, yeah, they are – they're shockingly yeah. similar, I admit. Yeah. <laughs> what about yours? What's so your favorite? My, my favorite really is that uh, that refit – galaxy class from all good things the dreadnought as they call it in star trek uh online um i love that because i feel like it just it took what i think is a very gorgeous design of the galaxy class and gave it some edge i think one of the problems with the galaxy class is it's a very happy looking ship it's a very nice looking ship and i mean some edge it destroyed two klingon battlecruisers in 10 seconds <laughs> it's a it's, it's a sleeper it's a but the <laughs> But that's the thing, though. The refit really gives it edge, right? You've got the um, the extra phaser cannons on the top of the uh, saucer. You've got the massive phase cannon on the bottom of the saucer. You've got the third nacelle. You've even got, like, these little kind of fins that come off the bottoms of, of the nacelle structure on the secondary hull. Uh, it just kind of gives it some edge, gives it some some intensity that I think the design really needed. Um, so that was absolutely my, my hands down personal favorite, uh, just across the board A- after that, it gets tough. It really, it gets difficult after that. Um, you know, that the refit of the constitution class is such an iconic design in science fiction, in pop culture, um, uh, that even the people that make fun of, of Trekkies still know that that's a Star Trek ship, right? Because like, um, like it was funny, like so as as a kid, um, and I still have the same vanity plate. But a, as a kid, my very my, when I was fifteen, I got my first car. Um, I had a vanity plate of a, a way to spell Enterprise. And in high school, a couple of times, my car was like mildly vi- vandalized, and people would make Star Trek jokes on it. And like I was trying to wrap my head around it. I'm like, wait, wait, hang on. So you saw my license plate. You knew what it said. You knew what it was referencing. So what, what, what's the difference? <laughs> like, you know what it is, right? It wasn't like I had a picture of Bender on my, on the side of my car and you're like, oh, Futurama. Like it was, I don't know. But, um, well, I mean, Futurama is amazing, well, but so is yeah, Star I love, Trek. I love Futurama. <laughs> um, I mean, my vanity license plate is Lord of the Rings. Oh, so I it's, didn't know that. Know, it's four, it's four Gondor, nice. literally. Every so often, I'll see people pull behind me and like take a photo. I, I used to get people a lot do like you know the, the Vulcan salute and things like that to me when they would pass. Oh, the, yeah. the problem with that is I can't do the Vulcan salute. I don't have the muscle control to oh. do it. I can't do it. We're gonna have to. So what you all aren't seeing is Derek and I are videoing yeah, I at the same time, and I, I can, can do it I with can both do hands. It if I spr- well, like it, like so it looks kind of right, but like. <laughs> so you're, yeah. you're doing the yeah. shat here. Okay. Um, and so I always feel guilty when someone does it to me because I feel like I'm a jerk not able to uh, return the favor. <laughs> um, all right. So you're, you're like, man, I want to do something for him. You just flip him <laughs> off. I'm like, Derek, no. 
Like, what's wrong uh, with you? So like, uh, we're, we're, we're over the hour mark now. There's obviously other ship designs we didn't touch on. We didn't get to Discovery. We didn't get to the Kelvin timeline. Um, we didn't really... T- oh, oh, last thing. Last thing, because you mentioned it. So the Enterprise refit and all good things. I don't know how many people are familiar with this, but in the original series, there was a Dreadnought-class battleship. Well, just it was a Dreadnought. It had three nacelles in the same style as... The Enterprise refit, and that's I think that's why people, at least in Star Trek Online, started calling it the Dreadnought um, as a kind of a homage to that. Um, and there's a few other ships that have you know multiple warp nacelles. Like I said, the Nebula class has the option for a third. Obviously, the Constellation class has mm-hmm. four. Um, they tried to play around with that, right? Voyager had the two, but they would uh, fold up when they would go into warp and, yeah. and things like that. And um, I appreciate those different those different concepts. Um, Greg, is there anything else you think we should touch on today? Obviously, we're gonna ha- we're gonna have to do a part two, just to cover the rest. <laughs> part two, three, you know? four, yeah. Uh, it's just I think that's something where, you know, Star Trek and Star Wars, probably the two biggest sci-fi space operas right now, even in, in most TV history. The Expanse is great, but it's still not that big. Uh, the Orville is still kind of small. Battlestar Galactica has got its niche, but. There's something about Star Trek where people have always been fascinated by the ships. And yeah, people are fascinated in Star Wars, but if they like the Imperial Star Destroyers, but then the Empire builds a bigger one, and then a bigger one, and then a bigger one. You're like, all right, well, this is just getting kind of... All right, now now you have a moon. <laughs> you're like, all right, this is just getting kind of weird. And the that's Rebellion no ships or the Mon Calamari ships, yeah, that's no moon. And the Mon Cal ships are like, oh, they used to be, they used to be like cruise ships. And then you're like, oh, okay. But then you think about it, you're like, wait a second. It was like a space cruise ship that was like three miles long and had these amazing shields. You're like, that doesn't, you're like, at some point you're like, that doesn't really jive to me. But Starfleet or Star Trek, excuse me, has always dumped so much lore into their ships. You know, in Star Wars, you have the Millennium Falcon, you have Luke's X-Wing. What other ships do people really care about? Slave One. Slave One, which, Yeah. Yeah. But you go to Star Trek, everybody's got the ships are part of the story. They're part I mean, of there's the so love. many like we, we I, right before we recorded, I posted in our Facebook group, Facebook.com slash groups slash red shirts and runabouts. I'd love for you guys to join us. Um, and I asked I told people what we were going to talk about tonight and what asked people to post what their favorites are. And I mean, we got um, the Nebula class. Somebody put in there. We got uh, the Defiant, the Galaxy, the Sovereign. Your Akira's in there. My Dreadnought's in there. We got the Intrepid class, the Constitution uh, refit. You know, like it is, it's all over the place. There isn't one right answer because there's dozens and dozens to choose from. And each ship seems to kind of have its own personality. Yeah, I mean, each ship has its own personality and it makes you wonder or makes you, it makes you realize that when people are going through the Academy, you know, if somebody's like a super expert on warp core design, you know, they might not get assigned to an Akira class. They might get assigned to a Constellation class because of the warp cycling or an Intrepid class is it makes more sense where like any college, like high school, even for us, some of our teachers are like, man, Derek, you're really good at this. Or Greg, you're really good at that. That's normal. That makes perfect sense that Starfleet would do that and go. You've got this specialized ship. You know, Greg, you're on the Oberth. I'm like, oh, man. I don't want to be on a science ship. What do I know about science? (laughs) 
Remember um, First Contact, the room where they're looking down on the planet with the force mm-hmm. shield over the window, and you have to get there through it. Like, what is the purpose of that room? Like, that's where I get assigned. <laughs> It's like there, there's a panel that opens the door and that's my, it. My thought process <laughs> would be like maybe maybe it's just like a lounge spot, you know, when, when there's just like a cruise mission going on and they just, you know, someone just wants to go look at the view over lunch or something like that. Because like – Make Well, kind make of because like you know, the, the, the Galaxy class had like the Arboretum <laughs> and it had gardens and, and you know, there was like – I think forward, there was yeah. even like a bowling alley in the Constitution class starship. Um, if I remember right in the original <laughs> tech specs. And so like, maybe this was you know something like that. It's kind of like a, your window view as a quiet spot. I don't know. Maybe. All right. Well, so here's the deal. Obviously we'll need to do a part two. We got to be able to, we have to talk enterprise discovery, the Kelvin timeline, other stuff. Um, and then at some point, I think we got to break down some of the, the other species ships as well. Klingons, Romulans, uh, maybe some others. Those are, those are the two that really get the love. Um, so I think we'll have to come back to this topic if that, if that's okay with you, Greg. Yeah, I think, um, we've got a plenty of content to discuss for like 12 more episodes of just starships and science ships alone. Um, there's no lack of content. And even with, I mean, hell, even the Borg, it's like, yeah, it started with the cube. But now you've got the spheres. Now you got the battles, the battle cubes, and <laughs> armored cubes, and all this stuff. I mean, it's and that's the other thing. I think that this is a great topic to discuss is because there's so much content out there, and they're continually making new content mm-hmm. on ships. Absolutely. So, all right. Well, then I think this is a good time to wrap things up. I think so. We're nearing the longest episode we've ever done, so we probably need to we probably need to call it quits now because I could keep going for like five more. I know you I could, could too. I really could. Uh, <laughs> but this episode has to come out tomorrow, so I still have to prep it and get it ready to go. So, <laughs> um, all right. So then, Greg, do you want to do you want to play us out? Yeah. Um, in case anybody's curious about where to find us, you can just you can Google it. We're actually large enough now. You can just go ahead and Google red shirts and runabouts. It'll take you to the Heroes Podcast website. Uh, Derek and team also host a, ver- a variety of podcasts, and hopefully Derek will introduce at least one or two of them when he's signing off. Uh, if you're interested in getting in touch with me directly, you can do so on Twitter at the underscore Bittersteel. It's a Game of Thrones reference for any of you Game of Thrones fans. He was one of the great bastards from Aegon the Fourth. Uh, I promise I'm, I'm better than just a great bastard, but maybe not all the time. Um, so, but there's plenty of content on the Heroes podcast and. Like Derek mentioned, we have a Red Shirts and Runabouts Facebook group. It's very fun. It's friendly. It's you can, I can voice my Picard opinions without getting destroyed. So it's one of those kind of in groups where we encourage diverse thought and diverse thinking. Um, but Derek, have people wanted to get a hold of you? How could they do so? So I am the Star Trek dude on Twitter. So you can come talk to me out there. I'm of course in the Facebook group uh, that Greg mentioned. And also I I do host another show here on the network called Screen Heroes. Uh, We are actually recording and releasing our 200th episode this week, which is really exciting. Um, This episode comes out on Tuesday, April 21st. We're recording our 200th episode that evening. Um, And so that's really great. We're uh, doing a sequel to our very first episode, which uh, was uh, the MCU, the good with the bad, where we way back in December of 2015 talked about what we thought was and wasn't working for the MCU. 
Uh, and now we're going to take a look back at it now, uh, you know, over four years later. So uh, you can come and, and see me out there. And I think that's it. I think so, but it's great being back. You know, I know we're we're talking bi-weekly, but hell, this was so good. If we get good feedback, maybe we'll record next week, too, um, since we're all stuck in quarantine land. <laughs> but no, it's it's good being back. I'm glad to be part of Red Shirts and Runabouts. So again, you can track us down online on Facebook. You can look at the Heroes Podcast website, track down any of a variety of the shows, whether it's Screen Heroes or, you know, I'm personally recommending Red Shirts and of Runabouts, course. of course. Uh, of course. But until then, if you've got good feedback on this, tell, tell us your favorite ship. Tell us your least favorite ship. Tell us why you, you don't like the Akira class. You think it's goofy because it has an anime name. I mean, you have a you have a point <laughs> on Starfleet using an anime name from 300 years. In, in the, it's like, Greg, what's your favorite ship? Oh, it's the Johnny Appleseed class. <laughs> and, and that's when Derek hangs up on me. Um, but catch us online. Catch us on Twitter. Catch us on Facebook. And we will be talking to you all soon. Thank you.